Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa rise and shine This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's Audio Bouquet Channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Kabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Figle Dingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, vote counting begins in Mozambique after presidential elections. And South Africa's international relations minister kicks off her visit to the Middle East. In economics news, IMF downgrades its forecast for global economic growth. And in sports news, UEFA opens probe into Bulgarian racism against England. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Counting of votes has begun in many voting stations in Maputo following the national and provincial elections held on Tuesday in Mozambique. The counting began shortly after the closing of the voting stations. The Mozambique National Electoral Commission is expected to announce the preliminary results within 72 hours after the closing of the polling stations. Mutsibiwa Munareng reports from Mozambique's capital, Maputo. Counting of votes has begun in Mozambique despite the reports that opposition parties had already reported cases of reeking in Zambezi province, a situation that is likely to discredit the elections. This has sparked a war of words from Renamo and other opposition parties who are accusing the ruling party Frilimo of manipulating ballots. The tension is likely to cause a standoff with the possibility of another civil war as the militant Renamo who are already threatening to take up arms. Malawi's government has dismissed fears of a possible Ebola outbreak in the country after a suspected case was reported in the northern district of Karonga, which borders Tanzania. The patient, reported to be 37 years old, was admitted last week at a health facility after exhibiting symptoms associated with the disease, prompting fears of an outbreak. The health secretary, Dan Namarika, dismissed the fears in a statement. Fears of a possible outbreak are heightened by the area's proximity to neighboring Tanzania, where the government has denied withholding information from the World Health Organization on suspected cases of Ebola. Search teams in the DRC have found the wreckage of a government-chartered cargo plane which went missing last Thursday with eight passengers on board. One of those was President Felix Tshisekedi's personal driver. The aircraft, also carrying military personnel, had provided logistical support for a presidential visit to Eastern DRC. An aid worker from the Catholic Relief Service said he had visited the crash site in Sankuru province and local villages had already buried the bodies of four people found among the debris. The Russian embassy in Kinshasa says two Russians had been on the Antonov 72 plane when it crashed. 
Members of Ghana's Muslim community are pushing for a new law that would prohibit and prescribe punishment for public officials who discriminate against women and girls who wear hijabs or headscarves. This follows reported incidents of discrimination against some Muslim women at work and in schools. This latest incidents incident comes after an invigilator from the West African Examinations Council asked a candidate to remove a hijab before for sitting for her exams. And finally, thousands of people in Catalonia have rallied in support of the region's independence from Spain, leading to clashes with police. Fires were started and protesters attempted to storm government offices in Barcelona. It follows the sentencings of nine Catalan separatist leaders on Monday. Protesters have reportedly been using an app known as Tsunami Democratic, which directs them to protest sites in Catalan cities. The BBC's Damien Grammaticus reports. All along the main avenue, the shopping district through the centre of the city and all the streets around, protesters had built barricades. They pulled out rubbish bins, they piled on anything they could find and set light to it. The police earlier had moved in to try to clear the protesters. There had been thousands of them who'd gathered in the area. They'd surrounded the offices of the Spanish central government and when they pressed forward onto the police lines to try to reach that office. That was when the police stepped up with their batons and they drove the protesters back. And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African time. Gateway to Africa is our entertaining and educational tourism, travel and business show. Join us every Wednesday at 10 hours Central African time as we explore the tourism landscape in Africa. Make a date with Gateway to Africa every Wednesday at 10 hours Central African time. Vote counting has begun in Mozambique after key parliamentary, presidential and provincial elections that President Felipe Nyusi said should help anchor peace in the southern African nation. Seven polling stations in the Mozambique's province of Cabo Delgado Delgado, due to sporadic attacks in that part of a country, acceptance of the results of Tuesday's elections are seen as a key test of a peace deal signed in August between the ruling Felimo party and its old civil war foe-turned-political rival Renamo. Mutsibi Munareng reports from Maputo. Thousands of Mozambicans came in numbers to their polling stations in the early hours to cast their votes. Some of the voters say by casting their votes, they will be able to hold the government accountable. They say they want improved education and health systems. I expect uh, we must decide about uh, a new government and make uh, different things about what the last government make it. I expect that and more for our... Our say we are young guys. That we need to improve other things in our government. That's why I expect I came here to vote today. What I want to see uh, voting. I want to see less corruption, more schools, more hospitals, economic growth. I think that is good, and I think that the people deserve. 
the president of Rilimo, Philip Newsom, cast this vote at 7 o'clock in the morning. Former Mozambican President Joachim Chisano cast his vote at Polano Secondary School in Maputo. Chisano is confident that the will of the people will prevail in these general elections. He says the leaders who took after him had to ensure that there is peace and developments in Mozambique. The general elections and presidential elections, since we instituted it, and I'm happy that I was part of bringing this kind of uh, uh, elections, this democracy, uh, starting from the education given to the people to understand it. It was not easy, very difficult, but uh, we succeeded and we are so far taking these elections regularly. The General Director of Mozambique National Electoral Commission, Felberto Naife, says there were challenges in other polling stations, but those challenges were soon resolved and voting proceeded. 20,162 um, polling stations opened in time. Only few that can couldn't open. Special in Katalgat province, where we were facing some sujets in northern uh, um, part of the province, I uh, can say that the number of seven uh, polling stations didn't open. An observer from the SADC, Lindy Wemnis, has urged all political parties to accept the results. Mnis says the outcome of the elections will be representing the will of the people. This uh, election is quite unique and very, very important to Mozambican people and also to Africa. Because this is the first time they are electing the provincial governors. They hitherto were appointed by the president. And this is a global best practice. So we commend the people for taking that decision. We want them to come out more for those who are yet to come uh, to vote. Because that is the right thing to do. Former Nigerian president and head of the African Union Observer Mission, Goodluck Jonathan, says Mozambicans have shown discipline during the elections. Jonathan says these elections are very important to the citizens of Mozambique and the African continent. He wished the country peaceful elections. This uh, election is quite unique and very, very important to Mozambican people and also to Africa. Because this is the first time they are electing the provincial governors that he later were appointed by the president. And this is a global best practice. So we commend the people for taking that decision. We want them to come out more for those who are yet to come uh, to vote because that is the right thing to do. The National Electoral Commission in Mozambique has committed itself that it will run free and fair elections. Mutsibuwa Munareng, Maputo, Mozambique. South Africa's International Relations Minister Naledi Pandul has kicked off her two-day working visit to the Middle East. Minister Pandul was in Qatar on Tuesday, where she met the country's Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Foreign Affairs, Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdul Rahman Al Thani. 
Today, Minister Pandil will travel to the Iranian capital, Tehran, to co-chair the ministerial session of the 14th South Africa-Iran Joint Commission of Cooperation with Foreign Minister Dr. Mohammed Javad Zarif. Uh, well, essentially, Qatar is a country with which uh, we have very uh, close relations, but I think we haven't taken the partnership to a level uh, that would be uh, supportive of the uh, investment drive uh, that our president is leading and the various infrastructure initiatives uh, that South Africa wants to undertake. I think there are immense opportunities uh, that we need to explore. I am very happy that the Minister of Foreign Affairs, who's also the Deputy Prime Minister uh, of uh, Qatar, invited me to visit and that I've been able to do so. Both of us have agreed that much more remains to be done in order to strengthen uh, the relationship between South Africa and Qatar. And my visit here is a process toward that strengthening. Minister, we are going to Iran where there will be a joint uh, consultative uh, commission. Talk more about tomorrow, what we are likely to expect from that mechanism. Well, the relationship with Iran is one that has been established over time, since the inception of our democracy. The Joint Commission is an active uh, working mechanism uh, that seeks to oversee the various initiatives that we've uh, agreed to undertake together. So the uh, working committees are essentially technical committees that oversee and monitor implementation of programs that we have agreed in a range of sectoral areas. So science and technology is one, higher education is another, agriculture, water, we have very good links, the ocean economy, uh, Iran is a member of the Indian Ocean Rim Association and plays a very active role within that. So all the various sectoral committees will be reporting on joint uh, agreements that we have entered into between South Africa and Iran and indicating the uh, progress uh, that we are making in those areas. And of course, given uh, all the uh, conflict and events uh, that are occurring uh, in this region, we shall certainly discuss matters of Palestine and the continuing struggle of the people of Palestine. We shall uh, discuss the conflict uh, in Yemen, as well as recent developments uh, uh, between Turkey and Syria. So all of this will form part of uh, our deliberations. We'll also share with our colleagues in Iran uh, some of our thinking uh, with respect to developments on the African continent, and particularly South Africa's interest in ensuring that we pursue peace as a very active uh, part of the work uh, that we will continue to undertake in support of the African Union Commission when South Africa assumes the chair from 2020. So all of this uh, will be part of our deliberations with, with Iran. South Africa hosted the World Cup in 2010 and doing so becoming the first African country to do so. Now Qatar is also going to be the first Middle Eastern country to host the World Cup in the year 2022. As a former host of this prestigious World Cup, what message do we have for the Qatari? Well, we were really fortunate that our delegation uh, was received and were most honoured uh, by the Emir uh, of, of Qatar, uh, His Royal Highness. And we were thrilled to share some thoughts about uh, the uh, Soccer uh, World Cup 
and particularly to share thoughts on South Africa's experience. The fact that this must be very well organized and that uh, it does serve to enhance uh, your standing uh, among world nations in that you suddenly become the center of attraction uh, for the world given the importance of this tournament and the billions of fans throughout the world. So for purposes of tourism, this is a very valuable uh, event to host. And of course, we said uh, young people will come here very excited and they will remember this. It's the legacy is the memory that they take away of their experience in the host country. And when it's a good experience, it's unforgettable. And those young people will always return to that host country because that's where very good memories uh, were generated. So we told them about efficient transport, ensuring that people can move out of the stadium easily, uh, that there's transport to take them to their destination after a match, uh, that the event ends the last day of the tournament and not at the end of each match. And so you've got to be absolutely on top you know, of your planning game. And I think one gets the sense here in Qatar uh, that this uh, 2022 World Cup is extremely well planned for. Uh, all Qataris are giving attention to it. Uh, and in particular, the infrastructure looks absolutely amazing. That's South Africa's International Relations Minister Naledi Panda speaking to speaking in Doha after meeting Qatar's Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Foreign Affairs Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdul Rahman Al Thani. Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT. Listen to Spotlight Africa, a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective. Spotlight Africa. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa has urged members of the international community to work together to strengthen multilateral institutions. Ramaphosa said this to ambassadors and heads of mission designate who handed over their credential letters to him from their respective leaders during a colorful, pomp-filled event at the Sifako Makato Presidential Guesthouse in the capital Pretoria on Tuesday. Busichimombe reports. Colombia's head of mission designate. Carlos Andrea Nino is just one of 13 diplomats who will be serving as their country's representatives to South Africa for the next few years. In Colombia, we have the 4IR Center for the World Economic Forum, and we are working really hard in the new technologies. We are giving skills to our new people, and it's time to work together. It's time to, to build bridges, and it's our time for Colombia and Africa. I would like to say Retavela Pova Mo Leguena Rea Leboa.
Nino, together with representatives from such countries as Ireland, Russia, India, Australia, Morocco, France and Lesotho, handed their letters of credence from their leaders to President Cyril Ramaphosa. Ramaphosa encouraged the diplomats at a small welcoming ceremony to work together to strengthen global institutions. We must work together to defend the integrity of our multilateral institutions by ensuring that they are both effective, inclusive, as well as truly democratic. We must strengthen these institutions because they are best placed to drive solutions to some of the stubborn challenges that we are facing as a global community. The President's appeal comes at a time when the United Nations is struggling financially and countries such as the United States become increasingly inward-looking in their approach to international matters. The President touched on the violence that has sporadically rocked South Africa's townships and towns in recent years, saying a lasting solution to the problems caused by migration must be found. For decades, South Africans have lived peacefully alongside people from other parts of the world, and especially the African continent, sharing resources, learning from one another, deepening our multiculturalism. We have a responsibility as leaders to understand the reality of international migration and put in place fair, sustainable and rights-based policies to manage it. Ramaphosa outlined South Africa's economic priorities and initiatives to grow jobs to the foreign representatives. France used the opportunity to announce President Emmanuel Macron's upcoming state visit to South Africa in May next year, with the Russian diplomat mentioning his country's excitement ahead of the Russia-Africa summit to be held from the 23rd of October. The United Nations says that at least 160,000 civilians have been displaced by a Turkish-led military offensive in northeastern Syria. The Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs also indicated they were not seeing large numbers of civilian casualties so far, but that some people were being killed on both sides of the Turkey-Syria border. This comes as the United States President Donald Trump reversed course just days after appearing to give Turkey the green light to begin its offensive against the Kurds by calling for an immediate ceasefire and issuing an executive order imposing economic sanctions on Ankara. Sean Braspeet reports from New York. As United States troops withdraw from northeastern Syria, the UN continues to gather information about the impacts Turkey's offensive is having on civilians, including possible war crimes. Rupert Colville for the High Commissioner for Human Rights. We have received reports and viewed two separate pieces of video footage showing what appear to be summary executions carried out by fighters belonging to the Ahra al-Sharqiyya armed group, uh, which is affiliated with Turkey, on the 12th of October. One of the videos, both of which uh, have been widely shared on social media, seems to show the fighters filming themselves capturing and executing three Kurdish captives on the Al-Hasakeh-Mambij highway, that's the M4. Only one of the captives appeared to be wearing military uniform. The worst incident we are aware of so far, uh, which we're still seeking to fully verify, is a report that at least four civilians, including two journalists, were killed 
and tens of others injured when a convoy of vehicles was hit by a Turkish airstrike. Several countries have expressed concern that Turkey's offensive could lead to a resurgence of the terrorist group ISIS in the region, with US President Donald Trump calling on his Turkish counterpart Tayyip Erdogan to implement an immediate ceasefire while imposing sanctions against Turkey's defense and energy ministries. This comes as Trump observed a backlash from U.S. lawmakers from both major parties for abandoning their Kurdish allies in the face of the Turkish action. The U.S. Vice President Mike Pence is expected to lead a U.S. delegation to Turkey in the coming days. President Erdogan reached out and requested the call. Uh, and uh, President Trump communicated to him very clearly that the United States of America wants Turkey to stop the invasion to implement an immediate ceasefire and to begin to negotiate with Kurdish forces in Syria to bring an end to the violence. President Trump reiterated his offer to mediate and arbitrate a negotiation between Syrian defense forces and the Turkish military. European nations have requested a Security Council meeting Wednesday where they're expected to receive briefings from both the Department of Peace Operations and Humanitarian Affairs, Council President and South African Ambassador Jerry Machila. Well, I think all council members are very concerned and uh, everybody hopes that, um, you know, we can do something at least to bring back the parties to to peaceful process and uh, save women and children. As concerns mount, U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said the new sanctions fell short of reversing the humanitarian disaster brought about by the president's own erratic decision-making. European Union countries earlier committed to suspending arms exports to Turkey, but stopped short of a fully-fledged arms embargo. I'm Sherman Bryce-Pease in New York. Police in northern Nigeria rescued nearly 70 men and boys from a second purported Islamic school where they were shackled and subjected to inhumane and degrading treatment. The raid in Katsina, the northwestern home state of President Muhammad Buhari, came less than a month after about 300 men and boys were freed from another supposed Islamic school in neighboring Kaduna state where they were allegedly tortured and sexually abused. Collins Atohengri reports. This is the second such homes to be discovered in northern Nigeria within three weeks and there is no telling how many more are yet to be discovered because of the predominant religious situation which tend to constrain outside influence from looking into the running of religious homes without some social, ethnic and religious consequences. What is however undeniable is that the place so far discovered have been found to be using religion to cover up what the Director General of the National Agency for the Prohibition of Trafficking in Persons, Julie Okadonli, describes as a clear case of modern-day slavery and human trafficking. This is clearly a case of modern-day slavery. And these, um, I mean, keeping over 300 um, underaged and adults in a situation like that with hands and legs chained, being tortured, and the boys being sodomized is nothing more than trafficking. This would have worked better if we had joint investigations and operations because this is a big case of human trafficking. Well, the police has gone ahead and raided and they've rescued children and adults. The discovery was made after some concerned individuals availed the police information 
something the Nigerian police has often called for to help it deal with crime and criminality, which has defied solution for a long while now. Speaking on the discovery and after rescuing about 63 inmates of the dubbed Islamic Rehabilitation and Study Center, the Kasina State Commissioner of Police, Sanusi Buba, says there will be a synergy between the police and the local traditional authorities and the Kasina State Government to find lasting solution while a thorough investigation will be carried out. We are going to put our heads together with the Emirate Council and in fact the state government so that uh, we can put in place machineries of uh, ensuring that all these people are returned to their parents. Because this man, this man does not have the capacity, one, he's not registered, two, he does not have the capacity to sustain this kind of so-called rehabilitation. There is no rehabilitation in this place, as you can see. Almost all of them were chained, if not all, and they were being beaten. The explanation given by one of the rescued inmates, Binda Garba, can only suggest and confirmed the fear that the center more than anything else was a torture house where freedom was not part of the commodities on the shelf for view. The first thing they brought me here was they pushed me inside, they searched my body, I have 1,000 naira inside my pocket and some coins. They robbed all my money and they chained my leg. When they brought me inside, in the morning, you will take pap, there is no sugar. To make sure that there is an ego eye on the activities of places where religion and education centers are used as fronts to hide possible cases of human trafficking. Julie Okadonli says the police needs to be assisted by other relevant agencies. In all of these states, the police have to ensure that they carry out surveillance to fish out. They need to get intelligence. They need to have uh, um, people who they can keep like on their payroll, you know, that can feed them with information leading to the discovery of places like this, you know, rescue these children, seal up the premises, have joint operations with other relevant law enforcement agencies like NAPTIP and the NIS where necessary. I mean, there are so many places like this. They hide under the guise of schooling and they, they torture children, they traffic children, they sodomize them, they rape them. They do all sorts of evil things to them. Now, we're not even sure of how many people have died in this facility because it is possible that a number of people would have died in a facility such as this. So there's so much, so much work to do. What has made this particular discovery rather popular is is probably because it is located in northwestern Nigeria in Kasina State and most curiously in Daura, a near border town and homestead of the Nigerian president Muhammadu Buhari. Though the police is making efforts to dig deep on the issue reported, there is no telling how many more of such centers exist across northern enclave of Nigeria where children are held against their wish and as some have dared to think that such places could be a veritable source of children being used as pawns by terror gangs to attack soft targets. The success of the police and other security operatives to break up such holds may yet help to tilt the scale of the war against insecurity in favor of the government. From Lagos, Nigeria, I'm Collins Nosato Engwe for Channel Africa News. It's 7.31 and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. The headlines... 
counting of votes has begun in many voting stations in Maputo following the national and provincial elections held on Tuesday in Mozambique. Malawi has dismissed fears of a possible Ebola outbreak in the country after a suspected case was reported in the northern district of Karonga, which borders Tanzania. And search teams in the DRC have found the wreckage of a government-chartered cargo plane, which went missing last Thursday with eight passengers on board. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. It's 7.32 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The African Presidential Leadership Centre is tomorrow hosting a roundtable breakfast meeting for company heads and continental business leaders in Johannesburg. In the spotlight will be the role of the private sector in national development in South Africa. The APLC is a South Africa-based NGO that has a continental focus and acts on a global scale. For more on tomorrow's meeting, we are joined on the line by Chairman of the African Presidential Leadership Centre, Ambassador Charles Stith. Ambassador, good morning and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Ambassador Stith. We seem to have lost that connection. We will try and reconnect with the ambassador just to get an update on what the meeting entails and what it's all about. It's 7.33 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The Africa Women Innovation and Entrepreneurship Forum are with together with the Technical Center for Agricultural and Rural Cooperation and African Women in Agribusiness Network are hosting a Value for Her training workshop on leading agribusinesses for success workshop from the 29th to the 30th of October this year in Cape Town, South Africa. This event, entitled Leading Agribusinesses for Success, provides women in agribusiness to strengthen their enterprises in Africa. Join women selected and invited from across the African continent with smart skills in business leadership and management for growth through targeted skills building and strengthen your capacity to harness and market opportunities continentally and globally. Beat the rush and pre-register at registration desks in front of Hall 8 and 9 at Cape Town International Convention Center. Channel Africa will be there. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Well, we have managed to get uh, the ambassador back online with us. Ambassador Charles Stith, uh, good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning. And I'm a rose and I'm shining. Great to be with you this morning. <laughs> Great stuff, Ambassador. Now, briefly tell us more about the African Presidential Leadership Center, its purpose and who belongs to it. Sure. Uh, the APLC... Uh, is a uh, it's a, I guess the best way to describe it it's it's a think tank 
that is devoted to uh, looking at African issues from an African perspective. Um, the leadership element comes into play uh, because uh, one of our primary resources are democratically retired uh, former African heads of state and government. And we make a, a, a concerted effort to reach out to uh, leadership across generational lines and both the public and private sectors. Uh, so uh, the, the thrust is, uh, again, to deal with uh, questions that are critical to the continent. The past couple of the years, we focused on education. Uh, this year, we're going to be looking at uh, the impact of the private sector in terms of national development and the issue of uh, uh, property and home ownership as it relates to dealing with the more difficult questions of, of land distribution. Now, who's expected to attend it? For instance, uh, are there any former presidents who will be joining the LP, uh, APLC meeting tomorrow? Yes. Uh, uh, the former president of Tanzania, uh, President Kikwete, will be joining us, uh, as well as uh, the former president of South Africa, President Matlante, uh, both of whom bring uh, unique perspectives uh, in terms of the issues around which we're uh, convening. Now, with the convening of this meeting, what happens thereafter? Is it a talk shop or are there going to be, um, you know, uh, plans in terms of taking it forward and how um, certain uh, decisions uh, taken during the meeting will be implemented or introduced to different governments and uh, ensuring that there is some sort of strategy going forward in terms of deliverables? Well, uh, it, the, the answer to the question, the way you raise it, uh, it is not a talk shop. Uh, our, our focus, is, again, is to bring together folks who are leaders in the particular spheres uh, relative to the questions that we're asking. Uh, as I said, this year we want to focus on the, the role of the private sector in terms of national development. Uh, we have a, a breakfast tomorrow morning, uh, in which President Kikwete will be speaking, and we'll have 150 or so private sector leaders uh, as well as public sector leaders uh, uh, engaging each other to come up with some practical uh, strategies that they have the power to implement because of the positions that uh, they hold. Uh, on the 18th, uh, the, the, the APLC Private Property Forum at Santon, where President Monte will be speaking, um, you'll have uh, leaders from the financial sector, leaders from the real estate sector, brokers, uh, folks who are involved in uh, property management and facilitation, all present. So the things that get said, the questions that get raised are the kinds of things that they need to be considering as they go about the day-to-day -day business of trying to give access to uh, South Africans uh, in particular 
uh, access to home ownership opportunities. And in terms of that, how how with the rest of the continent, uh, you mentioned um, former Tanzania's president uh, Jakaya Kikwete, and uh, how they would be able to to take uh, um, what is discussed, and uh, with uh, people presenting and and continued discussions at uh, the meeting, um, how would they then be able to implement whatever um, solutions or, or ideas that are brought to the fore in their different countries? Well. Uh, 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 several ways. First of all, just kind of picking up on a point in your question, and that is by virtue of the fact that uh, former President Kikwete is from Tanzania means that uh, points of conversation that take place here uh, will also become a part, we hope, of the narrative and the discussion in Tanzania. Uh, in both uh, President Montmante's case and President Kikwete's case, now that they are, are retired in a, an elective sense, they, they're both very busy guys, by the way. Uh, they spend a lot of time uh, engaging leadership across the continent, and I'm sure that a part of uh, these deliberations will find their ways into other conversations. Secondly, we do produce a communique, and uh, fortunately, uh, private property, which is one of the premier online real estate companies in South Africa, is a supporter of ours. The National Lottery uh, is a supporter of ours. So we have the resources to distribute the communique, which capsulizes and summarizes our deliberations and distribute those uh, throughout the the uh, the Ambassador Steve, uh, thank you so much for joining us and uh, hopefully we'll be able to chat to you after the meeting and just to find out how everything went and, uh, you know, um, implementation, implementation. Well, we appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk with you and your listening audience this morning. We look forward to you joining us and, of course, we look forward to having a conversation post-conference. Thank you, Ambassador. That is uh, the Ambassador Charles Stith, Chairman of South African-based NGO, the African Presidential Leadership Centre, joining us on the line. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms, on Facebook, Channel Africa One, on Twitter, at Channel Africa One, and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. A South African medical practitioner has identified a groundbreaking tool that helps women of all ages detect cancer-forming activity long before a detectable lump is formed. This has opened a window of opportunity for women to collaborate with medical practitioners to reduce the risk of this form of cancer and help prevent it. For more on this, Elizabeth Ledicha spoke to Dr. Buitumelo Musimani, and she starts by explaining what attracted her to the field of medicine. It's just a love for helping people. That is what attracted me to medicine, nothing else. I just loved being able to help people with health. Your groundbreaking tool, doctor, when and how was the idea conceptualized? When did it all begin? 
in my late 40s, I was a doctor working in the city of Jobe clinic at the time. When I started having issues with health, I didn't have anything diagnosed, but I had lots of symptoms. And that is when I decided to change my lifestyle and start looking at how I can prevent serious disease. And during the time when I was doing research, I came across breast demography. Then I started reading a lot about it, reading a lot, and ultimately I decided to get a machine, a screening device, so that I can use it for women. I found it very interesting because breast cancer is feared by women, and women don't know what to do. We have been taught all along that your best chances are to detect it early. But when I found demography, I realized that demography gives women a window period to work on their health because you can see your breast health, whether you've got good breast health or you are at risk for cancer. And that's something that I didn't know before. How does the device work and where does its power lie? It's an infrared thermal imaging camera. So it detects heat in the body. It detects inflammation that is hidden in the body. Hidden inflammation has been proven to be precursor or forerunner to diseases like cancer, heart disease, and arthritis. So now it's got different applications in medicine. But the one that I use is breast demography. I use the procedure to assess breast health and to assess breast cancer risk. Demography answers the question, is your breast healthy or are you at high risk for cancer? That's Dr. Buitumelo Musimani, a medical practitioner in South Africa, speaking to Elizabeth Lidicha. It is 7.45 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Our economics update up next with Tabisa Lohoko. Good morning. Rwanda has expressed interest to be among the first 17 nations across the world to be part of a new initiative for countries to identify areas for strengthening the management of financing for the SDGs with integrated financing solutions. The initiative is dubbed Integrated National Financing Framework. Rwanda signed up among the first 17 nations across the world to be part of the initiative on the sidelines of the recent United Nations General Assembly held in New York. Botswana's umbrella for democratic change says that the high unemployment rate is a taken time bomb that needs to be addressed urgently. The UDC says it has decided to put a time frame on its promises since the country is on a downward spiral. The party further says it's committed to creating 100,000 jobs in 12 months as a way of alleviating poverty among Botswana. The president of Haiti, Javan Almoïs, says he intends to end the country's corrupt political and economic system. He was responding to five weeks of protests and calls for his resignation. 
Opposition leaders and protesters are angry over fuel and food shortages, a steep currency devaluation and corruption allegations. Speaking during a news conference, Muis said he would not stand down, but would be ending questionable contracts with the businesses made under previous administration. I'm working so that peace returns and so that schools can be operational. I'm working to avoid the unknown, so that in place of this unknown, there is a change for an end to the system and to establish another system for a country to be at peace with awareness and development. The Zimbabwe Consolidated Diamond Company has begun its search for a new chief executive to replace Maurice Mbofu, who was fired five months ago amid allegations of corruption and abuse of office. The ex-fellow Mbofu and six other top managers at the diamond mining firm with its board arguing the move was aimed at cleansing the organization and rebuilding public confidence. The International Monetary Fund has downgraded its forecast for global economic growth by 0.2% for this year. The IMF now predicts a growth of 3%, increasing to 3.4% in 2020. It has also warned that risks of a worse outcome are elevated. The BBC's Andrew Walker reports. Growth of 3% would, the report says, be the slowest since the global financial crisis. It describes the somewhat better outlook for next year as precarious. It says there's been a sharp and geographically widespread slowdown in manufacturing and in global trade. Service industries, however, have been rather stronger. Much, though not all, of the slowdown and the gloomy outlook is blamed on tensions in international commerce, notably the dispute between the United States and China, where there have been further tariff increases. The report says undoing the trade barriers could help boost confidence and rejuvenate investment. The US dollar is trading at 360.11 Nigerian Nara. 1081 Botswana Pula, 102.71 Kenyan shilling, and 13.16 Zambian kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar will cost you 413 Brazilian roll, 64.28 Russian ruble, 71.19 Indian rupee, 77 Chinese yuan, and 14.84 to the South African rand, 78 pence to the British pound, 90 cents to the euro. Gold one thousand four eighty three dollars platinum eight eighty four dollars per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at fifty eight dollars eighty eight cents a barrel. From an African perspective, Lulu Gabu's Africa Rise and Shine remains your favorite program on this channel. And our sports update up next, Figile Lengwati. Figile, so um, South Africa, the box, getting ready for Japan. Yeah, they are, and they're not taking them for granted. They are preparing very well. They know that they can be a party pooper. And so we, it's Sunday. Sunday, it is the day. It is the day. Well, give us an update.
In our sports update this hour, we begin with athletics. Five Kenyans and one Ugandan have been included among a list of 22 candidates for this year's IWAF World Male and Female Athlete of the Year Awards. Our correspondent, Gesham Nyati, reports. Elliot Kipchoge, the world marathon record holder, is part of the Kenyan athletes vying for the male award. He won the London Marathon in a course record of 2 hours, 2 minutes, 37 seconds. Kipchoge made history becoming the first person to run the marathon in under two hours, recording one hour, 59 minutes, 40 seconds in Vienna in Austria. Timoth Chilrut, a 1500 meters world champion in Qatar, winner of the Diamond League Series title and won 10 out of 11 races this season, is another Kenyan contender for the award. Kenya has three female nominees in Beatrice Chepkoich, Helen Obiri and Bridget Koskai. Chepkoich is a world record holder in the 3000 meters temperatures, Diamond League champion and winner of seven out of eight races this season. Obiri was nominated for winning the senior world cross country title in Denmark, 5000 meters world title in Qatar and set a world leading time over 5000 meters in London. Koskai had two big wins this year. She set a new world marathon record in Chicago in the USA and won the London Marathon. She also set a world leading time for the half marathon. Geshom Nyati, Africa Sports, London. The spa proteas captain Bongim Somi is excited with the direction the netball is headed in South Africa, saying the sport was changing the lives of many young girls in the country. The national team made excellent gains in 2019 by reaching the semi-final of the World Cup that has played in Liverpool, England. A development of netball is expected to gain further momentum in the next four-year cycle, which will culminate with Cape Town hosting the global event in 2023. Msomi says these are exciting times to be involved with the game. You can only hope that um, achievements like this really gives a positive mindset to people to want to join our sport. And uh, I think netball has been doing great. That's why um, a couple of accolades has been given to netball. Even before this Kazakhstan Sports Awards, we've seen a lot of netball players being acknowledged in their provinces and because of hard work, because of achievements that they are receiving. So I think we are in the right direction. Um, Obviously, again, going to hosting netball here at home in Cape Town 2023, there's a World Cup coming to us. So there's been a lot of work being done. I can I can literally say I'm excited to see how netball can change lives. It's changed mine, and it will be great to evidence lots of lives being changed by the sport. Msomi is one of the best netball players, not just in South Africa, but also in the world. I'm very excited. I think... Um, Obviously, coming into any awards, I never expect to win. Uh, to me, playing netball is my life. It's what I do, and I love doing it. And I, I've been really, um, I've been really blessed to do what I do, do what I love, and have so much support behind me. And I think uh, today I have to stand really proud receiving the award again for the fourth time. And this fourth time around, it had a car. So I think um, if I look at what I do and the, um, everything that I do around netball, especially being a coach at some point, this is going to be such a great motivation for especially the girls in Hammersdale. Lutai High School just um, won an award as well, which is really exciting for me because we work with this kids and we want them to have a future in netball so all of this is just a build-up of what we want to see going forward with these um, kids so I'm, I'm really grateful i have to say that's the sporting news this hour
Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, vote counting begins in Mozambique after presidential elections and South Africa's International Relations Minister kicks off her visit to the Middle East. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutu Ramagadza, technical producer Murray Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. I'll take us to the top of the hour for the news is Cuesta with a track titled Ketile Ketile.
Zela get gonk, Musukala we mam, Musega get lost, Sinkosi was in your gum, Bonguma waxal, Bongo Babo wagont, Bonga Namanda wak, Bullets in Pesango, Boga Pella was this, Mfuna plenty your kids, so Shumayel and Fundis and so fully veiling him kiss, as the my love, Nalinda was Gayas, Gotwagas of Bonisan, when I'm a filagas. Bangtela Gazum, 